You can keep that passage open as we come to study it together today. Thinking over these next two weeks, uh, our theme is Commissioned by the King. Commissioned by the King. What is the purpose of the Christian church? If someone asked you tomorrow, as you meet a friend for coffee, or as you go into your workplace, why does the church exist? Why do you care so much about your church? What is the point of the church? What would you say? Some churches describe themselves as community churches. And of course, in a sense, every church is a community church. We're in a community. We, we want to reach the community. But some churches will very much emphasize this and, and they want to open up their buildings and, and use them for community events as much as possible. They, they really see themselves as being a place where people in the town or the village or the city can just come together, have a cup of coffee, get connected to one another. Other churches are perhaps defined more by their beautiful buildings. Maybe they have a building that is hundreds of years old and it's been a feature of the landscape in the village or the town or the city for all that time. But really, it's become a place that people go to if they're interested in history. And they go and look at the interesting architecture or the names in the graveyard or the names on the windows. And perhaps people do also go there and they, they would say they feel a sense of the transcendent, that in a special place uh, they feel better able to worship God. Still other churches are all about programs and classes and their weekly schedule is jam-packed. Uh, kids ministries, teen ministries, young mums ministries, singles, small groups for grief or suffering, small groups for mental health, in-depth Bible studies for the super keen Every possible need, every possible age group, all catered for. And most of what I've just mentioned is in no way bad. In fact, uh, many of those things I've just mentioned are very good and worthwhile things for churches to be doing. But what is the one thing, the one mission for which we exist? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us here at the end of Matthew's Gospel... He says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. The mission of the church is to tell people who Jesus Christ is and what he has done so that they become his committed followers. The mission of the church is to tell people who Jesus Christ is and what he has done so that they become his committed followers followers and from time to time we need to remind ourselves about this it's it's easy for churches be easy for our church to feel busy to feel like we're doing important things when in fact it's quite possible that a church stopped doing the most important thing particular danger for the church in our part of the world where we have denominations that are hundreds of years old and buildings that are hundreds of years old is that we simply fall into what one preacher has called maintenance mode. We have buildings to maintain. We have church membership rules to maintain. We have traditions to maintain. But when maintenance takes up all of our focus to the exclusion of mission, we've made a mistake. And that's something that I'm keen that we would avoid here in Dremore. And so with another summer upon us, when... There are go teams and mission teams and camps and 
outreach efforts all across our country, all across the world. And when we have our own plans for our own corporate witness at the end of next month, as well as the need for our ongoing personal witness on a daily or weekly basis as we have opportunity, I thought it would be timely for us to return again to (coughs) our standing orders to remind ourselves that we have been commissioned by the King. And in fact here, we don't just have the Great Commission, we have what you might call a Great Declaration, and then the Great Commission or a Great Command, and then we have a Great Comfort. And those are the three things that I want us to look at over the course of two sermons. A Great Declaration, a Great Command or Commission, whichever you prefer, and a Great Comfort. And we'll think just today about a great declaration. And it's hard to overstate the importance of this passage. One preacher says that this is the climax and major focal point, not only of Matthew's gospel, but of the entire New Testament. The focal point of the entire New Testament. It's no exaggeration, he says, to say that in its broadest sense, this is in fact the focal point of all scripture. It's quite a statement. It's the focal point of all scripture. Trust we won't overanalyze it. It is after all a passage that calls us to action. But nonetheless I want us to thoroughly consider it. And that's why I'm doing so over two sermons rather than just one. And so as we think today about this great declaration that Jesus has made. Particularly looking at verses 16 to 18. Think first of all about the fact that this is a declaration about who Jesus is. A declaration about who Jesus is. Verse 17 here includes a a fascinating detail about this meeting between the risen Jesus and what was at this point his 11 disciples. 11 of course because Judas had betrayed him and Judas has now died and hasn't yet been replaced. Verse 17 says that when the disciples met Jesus in the hillside of Galilee, they worshipped him but some doubted. Some of your translations might have the word hesitated. Uh, Instead of doubted. It's a word that only appears twice in the whole New Testament. We might be surprised to read this. but, But details like this in fact speak to the trustworthiness of scripture. Because none of us would ever have included a detail like this. If we wanted to make something up off the top of our heads. And convince everyone to believe it. We would have just thought. Well we need to make sure that it looks very persuasive. That everyone just immediately believes this. That's not what Matthew tells us here. Uh, um, we, we're not, we can't be sure exactly what was causing these hesitations or doubts amongst uh, Jesus' followers. Perhaps some of them were, were slow to worship him because they felt guilty. Remember how all Christ's disciples ran from him the night of his arrest in Gethsemane. And perhaps they feel too ashamed to come and to worship him or to be with him. Perhaps some of them simply didn't quite recognise him. Some of the other passages that describe resurrection appearances of Jesus seem to suggest that his appearance was somewhat changed, that people didn't always immediately recognise him. He's not completely glorified in his body at this point. That wouldn't happen until he ascended into heaven. Uh, But nonetheless, his appearance is somewhat changed and perhaps that caused doubts. Ultimately, we don't know what caused these doubts, but it's a very human, believable detail, is it not, friends? 
that some of the followers of Jesus, a bundle of nerves and worries and misunderstanding, that they, they didn't immediately worship him. Don Carson says, perhaps the move from unbelief and fear to faith and joy was for some a hesitant one. Going from unbelief that Jesus would be risen again to complete belief, perhaps it took some time. But notice in any case the important point, the more important point. Jesus' disciples worshipped him. And Jesus does not stop any of them from worshipping him. The apostles Paul and Peter, at different times in their experience, they had people who wanted to worship them. The book of Acts tells us this a couple of times, that people upon hearing the message that Paul or Peter proclaimed, seeing the miracles that they did, they were about to fall down and worship them. Similarly, John tells us in Revelation that at one point, uh, he was so taken aback by the appearance of an angel that John almost fell down and worshipped an angel. But Paul and Peter and the angel all told people, no, 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 don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus here <coughs> does not correct his disciples and he doesn't stop his disciples from worshipping him. He accepts the worship of his followers because he is God. And he is making that abundantly clear in the declaration that he makes. If you look at verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First thing we need to understand about that declaration, friends, is that Jesus is telling us that he himself is God. And of course, it's not just here at the very end of his time on earth that Jesus is revealing this. All four of the Gospels are designed to show us that Jesus was constantly doing things and constantly making claims that only God can make. No one understood this better at times than Jesus' enemies. Why was it that Jesus' enemies got so annoyed at him at times? Well, it's because they understood the implications of what he was saying. John 10 verse 33, you, a mere man, claim to be God. You're claiming things, you're saying things that you have no right to say. Because of course they didn't believe that he was God. What did Jesus say when the paralyzed man was lowered through the roof? Matthew 9 verse 2, son, your sins are forgiven you. And his enemies again were angry and they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus was claiming the authority of God. He was claiming to be God. Think of what we've considered at some of our communion seasons in the last year or two. The I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. He comes out and just says in John chapter 10 to his enemies... He says, before Abraham was, I am. Who was it in the Old Testament that spoke like that? Who spoke to Moses like that? Who told Moses to describe him that way to the Israelites? It was Yahweh. It was God himself. I am who I am. And here, friends, with his 11 disciples, 
as he gives them their marching orders, the mission of the church, Jesus does so, claiming again to be God. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 36 says, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? We'll think more about that word mediator shortly. The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, of one substance and equal with the father in the fullness of time became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. Jesus has two natures in one person. He is the nature of God and he is the nature of a man, of humanity. And he remains God and man forever. And that's what he is telling his disciples here. He doesn't stop them from worshipping him. He accepts their worship and he says, I have the authority and power of God. We tend not to like it when people... uh, when people don't let us speak for ourselves. If someone introduced me and said, this is Philip, he can play the guitar, he supports Liverpool Football Club, and he likes to relax by doing a bit of baking, I'd be very annoyed, because none of those things are in the slightest true about me. If we want to know who someone is, we really need to let them speak for themselves. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, the most significant figure in the history of the world, about whom more books have been written, more songs have been sung, more discussions have been had than about anyone else. People tend not to let Jesus speak for himself. Jehovah's Witnesses do not let Jesus speak for himself. They take his word and they change it. And they, pre- and they present a different version of who Jesus is. The Mormons do the same. The Muslims do the same. People like Stephen Fry or Richard Dawkins, who of course claim not to believe in God at all, they don't deny, as far as I'm aware, they don't deny the existence of someone called Jesus from long ago, but they will patronise him. He was a good teacher. He was a nice man. He was sort of a rebel without a cause, a hero of the outsiders and the underdogs. And Jesus would say to them what he said to the rich young man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, do you know who I really am? Here he is accepting the worship of his followers and declaring all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We ought to let Jesus speak for himself. Either he is who he says he is, which means he deserves our worship and our obedience, or he's a madman the like of which Stephen Fry and everybody else should have nothing good to say because no one should make the sort of claims that he made unless he was telling the truth. And this is also why we need to be careful, friends, as we think about our witness and evangelism, we need to be careful about describing Jesus as my personal Lord and Saviour. He is my personal Lord and Saviour, but he is not just that. And if we present him as just my personal saviour, that that sounds to some people today as my personal preference. And people are going to say, well, I'm I'm pleased for you. I'm pleased that, that Jesus works for you personally. For me, 
yoga works. For me, music works. For me, coffee works. We must not give the impression that we present Jesus as just another option on the buffet of ideas. He is speaking here with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is not an option. He is to be obeyed. He is to be believed in. He is to be worshipped. Do you worship him? Do you believe him or not? Declaration about who Jesus is. Secondly, this declaration is telling us of the power Jesus possesses. The power Jesus possesses. Look again at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That little word there, all, dominates verses 18 to 20. Jesus has all authority. He commands his disciples to go into all the nations, teaching people all that Jesus has commanded them. And Jesus is with them always. Jesus, in claiming here to be God, Yahweh is claiming all the power of God. A God who is all-powerful. A God who has all authority. And the word also is, is, is talking about his sovereignty. His control over all things. And what we have here, friends, is quite clearly, as Matthew has described it for us, a fulfillment in Jesus' words of a very important Old Testament passage. That being Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. This is one of the passages that uh, the Jews, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, uh, really had pinned their hopes upon. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And in claiming here all authority, Jesus is obviously claiming fulfillment of that passage in Daniel. He's all powerful. He's completely sovereign in heaven and on earth. And again, the Gospels show us this all throughout. They, they build the evidence for this being the case. What happened when the storm whipped up on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus had been sleeping in the boat and his disciples wake him up? Matthew eight twenty six. Jesus commands the storm to be silent, to stop. And the wind and the waves fall silent. He has authority over nature, over creation. What happened when demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus? And Jesus commanded the evil spirits. They had to come out of the people. Jesus has authority. He has power over evil spirits. What happened when the sick or the dead were brought to Jesus? He healed them and he raised them. Jesus has power over sickness and even over death itself. Again, Matthew 9 verse 2, Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus even has authority as God to forgive sins. As Abraham Kuyper has famously put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
This is his church. You are his subject. This is his world. This nation is his nation. He is all powerful. He has all authority as God. And that being the case, friends, since Christ commands us to go, we must go. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but notice the word therefore in verse 19. We'll come back to it next week more fully, but it's a linking word there in verse 19 with what we've been looking at in verse 18. All authority has been given to me, therefore go. Go because it's Christ telling you to go. Go because, the, because of the authority of the one telling you to go. The one giving the orders makes all the difference as to whether we're going to do something or not. Isn't that, isn't that right? Those of you who are teachers, be glad to be on your holidays now, I'm sure. But if a pupil uh, comes into your classroom and says you're to stop whatever you're doing, stop teaching your class and go to the assembly hall, you're not just going to go because some pupil comes and tells you to do it. But if the pupil says, I've been sent here by the principal and the principal has asked me to pass on a message and the principal wants you to go to the assembly hall, well, then you have to go. Christian friends, we only speak, we only go, we only witness on behalf of the one who is in authority, the one who is all-powerful. And that should give us confidence to go. It gives us confidence because we're reminded that in our going and in our speaking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, we only need to be faithful, not successful. We pray for success. We pray for fruit. We go out hoping and, 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 with, and choosing our words and taking opportunities because we want to see fruit. But the fruit is in the hands of Christ the King. He has only told us to go. We deliver the King's message. The King has the power to do with it whatever he sees fit. Again, that word authority there in verse 18, has, it encompasses the, the idea of sovereignty, his full control over everything. Our king is sovereign over senior camp this week. He's sovereign over uh, the go teams and the Bible clubs that we were praying for last week. He's sovereign over the go teams and the CEF teams and, and the other forms of outreach still to come this summer. He's sovereign over our plans for our own outreach in our own town. He is sovereign when you offer a book to an unbelieving friend or invite an unbelieving family member to church or defend your faith in an unbelieving workplace. We are only called to go to speak to witness. It is Christ who is sovereign, who's in authority and in control. And since he has all authority, friends, are we submitting to his authority? Is there any part of our lives where the authority of Christ is not being recognized? In our marriages, in our finances, in our social media habits, he lays claim to it all. He rules over it all. Are we submitting to his rule in it all? Are we going? Are we speaking? Are we urging people to become disciples of the King? And that leads us to think lastly, uh, as we think about this great declaration, that it's, 
a declaration about the position Jesus has been given. A declaration about the position Jesus has been given. Notice verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Has been given to me. And those words, friends, remind us that Jesus today is in a position, a unique position, as the mediatorial king of the nations. It's not maybe a phrase that we often use, but what does it mean? It's very important that we understand what it means that Christ is the mediatorial king. Well, mediatorial, it obviously comes from the word mediator. And if you, if you have two people, for example, who have fallen out, maybe they fall out in the workplace, maybe they fall out in the home, a mediator might be needed to, to come between them, to, to sit between them, to bring them back together, to resolve the problem. And that's what Christ has done in his coming into the world, his death on the cross, his resurrection. Uh, the, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 to 6, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Jesus, in giving himself up on the cross, was doing the work of a mediator. Our sins invite the wrath of a holy God. Our sins have divided us from God. We need to be reconciled to God, brought back to him. No longer his enemies, but his, his friends, his, his loved ones. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God the Father. And in doing so, in, in, in being obedient to his father, because of course his father uh, planned for the son to do that from all eternity. Jesus, having been obedient, has now been rewarded. He's been rewarded not just by his being raised from the dead, but by the father appointing him as king over the nations and over the church. That's the position that he has been given we were thinking several months ago about Philippians chapter 2 and the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 9, God has highly exalted him. God has raised him up from the earth and seated him, given him, Paul says, the name that is above every name. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four, Paul says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Christ has been given this position of mediatorial king and he will sit in that position, friends, until the day that he returns to the world as judge of the living and the dead. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What he's saying is that Christ will hand the kingdom, hand the nations over uh, to God, Father, Son and Spirit. And that which was given to the Son will be shared by the Godhead for all eternity. The point is, friends, that today Jesus is king, not just over the church, but over the nations. He is the king of kingdoms, like the United Kingdom. And he's king of republics. Republics still have a king, whether they want to admit it or not. 
like Ireland and the United States and he's king of dictatorships like Russia and he's king of communist states like China. He rules the nations and he is giving time to the nations to repent and to believe and to become his disciples. This is why as covenanters we, we do believe that Christians should be witnesses not just to our fellow citizens but to our government. We don't believe in advancing the gospel via political power as such. But nonetheless in the world of politics where laws are passed and discussions are had about what is right and wrong for our society. The king should be represented. And so when our government is discussing laws that would be completely against the will and desire of the king as he has given it to us in his word. We need to witness to them. We need to urge them. Do as the king has commanded. And so whether it's in the halls of power. Or whether it's in the seeming, seemingly quiet little towns like Dromore County Down. Here as well friends. The king needs to be represented. The fact that he commands all men everywhere to repent of sin. Needs to be declared. The fact that the king will one day return and the people must bow the knee to him. It needs to be made known. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 14, This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Do we want to see Christ return? Trust we do. We know he will. He's commanded us to pray for it. Your kingdom come. How is his kingdom going to come? It's going to come as we go. And as we proclaim what the king has called us to to proclaim. And again I hope this enthuses us for mission. And motivates us to mission. Because we know that the mission cannot fail. That as we go we are doing what the king commands. And as we go we know that the king is coming. One writer says, The all-sovereign Son of God, our Saviour, is in command of a commission that will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. It's not mission impossible. It is a mission that will be accomplished. We haven't even considered fully yet what it is our King has commanded us to do, God willing. We'll look in detail at that next week. But of course we know that it is to be his witnesses. It is to make disciples. It is to command all men everywhere to repent. And yes, we live in discouraging days. We live uh, in our part of the world. We are seeing very few people. We're seeing them in the ones or the twos rather than in the dozens or the hundreds. Repent of sin and confess Christ as king. We might be tempted not to bother We might be afraid. We might wonder what's the point. We might fear loss of status. Loss of a friendship. Loss of respect. Even perhaps some of you someday. It could be loss of employment. And I'll be the first to admit. Evangelism is daunting. I find it daunting. But we need to set our excuses aside. Because look at who it is who has commanded us to go. Jesus Christ the King, who declares himself to be God, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, who is King of the Church, 
and King of the nations. Therefore, we go. Because we love him, we go. Because he gave himself up for us, we go. Because he commands us, we go. Maybe you don't yet go because you don't yet know. You don't know Christ. You've never come to the point of realising who he is. Well, I trust you've heard faithfully today who he is. (coughs) He is God. He is man. He's the only one who can save you from your sins. And so repent and believe in this king and join the ranks of this king because he is coming soon. May the knowledge of who he is and what he has done and the position that he holds, friends, may it spur us into action, into obediently going as Christ our King commands. Amen.